Last week, we did the story of Judith, which was set, so it says, during the reign of King Zedekiah, the very last king of Judah. This next book we're looking at is set at about that same time. In the Bible, the book of Baruch, uh, if you have a Bible with Apocrypha, Baruch is usually inserted right after Jeremiah and Lamentations because Baruch was Jeremiah's faithful friend and secretary. And if you remember back to class 65 and the fall of Jerusalem, at the, when Jerusalem falls, Jeremiah and Baruch are taken to Egypt by the refugees who are fleeing the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah didn't want to go, but they got taken anyway. So it's with some surprise that we find Baruch supposedly writing his book in Babylon at exactly the same time he's supposed to be in Egypt. All of the exiles hear the words of the book of Baruch and weep and fast and pray and take up a collection um, to send back to those in Jerusalem to use in temple worship. So from that, you know, from knowing that it's written in, in Babylon and seeing here that the temple's still standing, uh, we know that whoever wrote this book of Baruch is envisioning Baruch as an earlier exile, one who went to Babylon prior to the actual fall of Jerusalem. So he may have been in the wave that Daniel was in, for example, which doesn't fit at all with what the Hebrew Bible said, but, but this is a, somebody else's version of the story. So then the writer of Baruch refers to the current king of Babylon as Belshazzar. We've met him. Um, and he says he's the current son of Nebuchadnezzar. But we know that Belshazzar was not even a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, even though he did control the throne as regent for, you know, 30 or 40 years after the fall of Jerusalem. So this, you know, son of Nebuchadnezzar thing is just meaning he's sitting on the throne. But it, here again, we have a mashup of historical figures and times and places. At any rate, so the story goes, the book of Baruch is sent back from Babylon to the people in Jerusalem when the exiles send their collection for the temple. And the exiles urge those in Jerusalem to pray for them, for they are suffering under the displeasure of God. And they urge those remaining in Jerusalem to remember all that God has done for Israel and how God sent prophets to warn them, but how they were obstinate with, quote, every man walking in the imagination of his own wicked heart to serve strange gods and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord our God. The exiles recall the great suffering during the sieges of Nebuchadnezzar when the people of Israel were forced to cannibalize their own children, as had been prophesied several times in scripture, and they place that fault squarely on their own shoulders for sinning against God. But now this remnant, this raggedy band of exiles in Babylon repent, repents and throws themselves upon God's mercy. And they remember that God told them through the prophets that they should willingly serve the Babylonians and surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, but that 
they did not listen to those prophets and therefore all this calamity has come upon them. Baruch writes, remember the words you told your servant Moses, O Lord. And then he quotes Moses in Deuteronomy 30 saying, when all these things have come on you and you remember them while you're in exile and you return to Yahweh, your God and listen to him, you and your children, and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, then Yahweh, your God, will release you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you back from where you have been scattered. Now, notice that this is, this is from Deuteronomy. This is back, you know, the wandering in the wilderness kind of time. Notice that Moses specifically refers to the future exile and captivity that has now come to pass. That's one reason some, but, but not all, scholars think his words may have been written down in hindsight. It's also entirely possible that the Holy Spirit revealed this to Moses over a thousand years before it happened. The quote from Moses continues, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there, Yahweh, your God, will gather you. And from there, he will bring you back. Yahweh, your God, will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you will possess it. He will do you good and increase your numbers even more than before. Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring to love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So this beautiful promise is in Deuteronomy 30. And although Baruch does not quote this particular part, he is calling um, this whole entire well-loved passage to mind to these exiles. It's, this is a central promise that runs from the beginning to the end of the Hebrew Bible. And it's now referenced in this book of the Apocrypha written in the intertestamental period. Jesus himself calls out this promise in Deuteronomy 30 as being the point on which all the law and the prophets hang. It is to this sort of repentance and humility that Baruch is calling the people, and it is to this promise of mercy that Baruch is calling God's attention. Baruch reminds the people, you have forsaken the fountain of wisdom, for if you had walked in the way of God, you would have found her treasuries and dwelt in peace forever. Learn where is wisdom, where is strength, where is understanding, that you may also know where is long life, light of the eyes, and peace. All those who treasured riches did not find enlightenment, neither did all the diviners and magi find wisdom. God did not choose the giants, the makers of war. Who has gone up to heaven and captured wisdom and brought her down? But God found her. God has given her to Jacob, his servant, and to Israel, his beloved. And now she dwells on earth among us. Her light shines through the commandments of God and through the law. So turn and take hold of her shining light. 
Be of good cheer, my people Israel. You were sold to the nations, but not for destruction. You provoked your creator by sacrificing to demons. You forgot your God. Now notice the demon wording here. That's a cultural shift. In the Hebrew Bible, the word used would have been idols, not demons. We're seeing this language begin to creep in. You grieved Jerusalem, for she also saw what would happen to you. She knew her children would be stripped from her, and she would be widowed. But be of good cheer, my children. Cry out to God, and he will hear you and deliver you from the hands of your enemies. The everlasting will save you. For he that brought these plagues upon you shall bring you everlasting joy again with your salvation. Be of good cheer, O Jerusalem, for he that called you by name will comfort you. Then Baruch pronounces over Babylon, miserable are those who afflicted you, Israel, and rejoiced at your fall. For as she, meaning Babylon, rejoiced at your fall and was glad of your ruin, so shall she be grieved for herself. I will take away her exultation in her great multitude, and her boasting shall be turned into mourning. For fire shall come upon her, and the everlasting long to endure, and she shall be inhabited by devils for a great time. Again, notice the cultural shift, long-lasting fire being inhabited by devils, both of them as a punishment from God. This is new theology not found anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. It is being absorbed by the Jews from the Persian culture, and we find definite strands of it continuing into the New Testament. If you only read one chapter of Baruch, make sure it's chapter 5. This is a gorgeous vision in which he exhorts Jerusalem to put off her garments of sorrow and affliction and put on the beauty of the glory of God, a robe of righteousness and a diadem. Stand, Jerusalem, and watch as your children are gathered back to you. The mountains will be made low and the valleys filled to make the path smooth so that Israel may go safely to her God. And God himself will lead them with mercy and with righteousness. What a beautiful, beautiful chapter. And it echoes the prophet Isaiah, whose words are picked up again later by John the Baptist. I love the author's understanding that when the mountains are made low and the rough places plain, that it is to make the path smooth so Israel can go to her God and be led by God's own hand. The book of Baruch has an epilogue, a letter from Jeremiah explaining to those going into exile that the idols worshipped and feared by the Babylonians are nothing more than lumps of wood and clay covered with silver and gold. They can't eat or even move. They have no power. And so Jeremiah says repeatedly, do not fear them at all. And so ends the book of Baruch. 
there are two books of wisdom in the Apocrypha. The first one we'll look at, the Book of Wisdom, is sometimes called the Wisdom of Solomon. It's written in Greek, but it's written in the style of Hebrew poetry. And based on the cultural overlays in the book, it was probably written very late, maybe even as late as the first century before the turn of the millennium. So just a few years before the birth of Jesus. This is a very late book. We won't cover it in detail as it is 19 chapters long and you can read it at your leisure. I'll focus on giving you a good overview, highlighting the themes and some of the more significant bits. But if you do read it on your own, be sure to stay alert for binary sorts of statements of the kind we don't typically find in the Hebrew Bible. Here's one, for example. Wisdom will not enter into a soul that devises evil, nor dwell in a body that is enslaved by sin. Well, obviously, none of us are 100% wise, nor 100% without sin, nor 100% with sin, right? So when you read these proverbs and sayings, try to read beneath the the harsh edges and understand the the wisdom that's, that's trying to be conveyed. In this case, it's true that if you're seeking sin, you're not seeking wisdom nor walking by her light. Evil has no wisdom in it. That is true. But even with these binaries and hard edges, there is tremendous beauty in this book. Here's my favorite part from chapter one. Don't court death by sinning and don't draw destruction upon your head by the works of your hands. Because God did not make death, nor does he delight when the living perish. For he created all things that they might have being. The creative powers of the world are wholesome and there is no poison or destruction in them, nor does Hades have dominion upon the earth, for righteousness is immortal. We need to hear these words. God does not delight in death. God makes life. Hades, as we've learned, is the Greek word for Sheol, and it's not a place of punishment, but it's neutral like a graveyard. And even that has no dominion upon the earth. But even still, be careful that you do not build a theology upon the foundation of this book alone. There are many things in it that are reflections of the cultural beliefs of the time. Here's an example. But death entered into the world by the envy of the devil, which is the Greek word for Hasatan, the Satan. And those who belong to him experience it, meaning death. We already know that to the ancient Israelites, Satan was not part of any of what God taught them. He's not mentioned in the law of Moses. God simply doesn't talk about him. He only shows up once in a sort of explanatory gloss for why David does something unfaithful. And then again, in a folkloric intro to the book of Job. But otherwise, the devil really doesn't start showing up as a persistent character until these years after the Persians and the Greeks bring their culture and theology to the region. So this is new theology that the envy of the devil brought death into the world. 
it appears to me to be reading something into the creation story of Genesis that is not there. According to this writer, the serpent, who in the Genesis story is only described as a wild animal, is actually Hasatan, the devil. And he is envious of Adam and Eve, and that's why he tempts them, and that's how death enters the world. And furthermore, that all who belong to the devil experience death. From this point of view, that would be all of humanity. So is this then saying we all belong to the devil? All of this is an embellishment of the original story. And I see these like tentacles still permeating our Christian worldview. It's also in the Book of Wisdom that we first run across the concept of a place like purgatory. It's in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will touch them. They seem to have died, but they live in peace. So notice the idea of torment after death. That's new theology. God tested them like gold in the furnace, and he accepted the righteous as a whole burnt offering. Having borne a little chastening, they will receive great good because God tested them and found them worthy of himself. Well, we already know from our study of the Hebrew Bible that God offers this refining fire to us now in our earthly bodies in the form of the Holy Spirit. This refining is part and parcel of drawing near to God, which we do always and every day in this life. But here for the first time, it is specifically picked up and moved to an after death sort of experience. The word Purgatory is a Latin word meaning purify. So you can see where the concept is coming from. So again, I want to warn you that building theology based on these apocryphal books should be done with extreme care. Although refining is an important concept in the Hebrew Bible, there is no such thing as a purgatory after death in the Hebrew Bible. And it is not until the Apocrypha and many, many hundreds of years later, well after the time of Christ, that the concept of purgatory becomes fully developed and is added into some branches of Christianity. In fact, many of the harsher doctrines of the church find roots in the Apocrypha. For example, in chapter three, it says, the wives of the ungodly are foolish and their children are wicked. Their descendants are cursed. The children of adulterers will be despised even into their old age. So you can see why I'm reluctant to spend a lot of time in this book. There are so many weeds among the wheat. To the writer of the book of wisdom, God is fierce, stern, judgmental, and warlike, especially towards those who are in leadership positions. But like the writer of Baru, Psalms, Proverbs, and others, this same writer views wisdom as female and of great worth. Wisdom is radiant and doesn't fade away. And is easily seen by those who love her and found by those who seek her. 
For her true beginning is the desire for instruction. And the desire for instruction is love. At this point, the writer switches to the voice of King Solomon, which is why the book is sometimes called The Wisdom of Solomon. And King Solomon supposedly describes his birth and his longing for wisdom. And Solomon describes wisdom in exactly the same terms we Christians would describe the Holy Spirit. He says, for wisdom is the architect of all things. She is quick to understand, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, freely moving, clear in utterance, unpolluted, distinct, whole, loving what is good, keen, unhindered, beneficent, loving, steadfast, sure, free from care, all-powerful, seeing all, and penetrating through all spirits. She is more mobile than any motion. She pervades and penetrates all things. She is a breath of the power of God and a clear expression of the glory of the Almighty. She is a reflection of the everlasting light, an unspotted mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. She, being one, has power to do all things. Remaining in herself, she renews all things. Now that is an amazing description. Being all-powerful, all-seeing, one, renewing all things, the architect of all things. Later, he describes her as all-knowing. In truth, these words can only describe the Holy Spirit. But again, remember, we are in the Apocrypha, not a place for building foundations of theology. In the Hebrew Bible, Proverbs 8.23 says, wisdom is a created being, created before all things, But that same book in the Hebrew Bible also says, the Lord by wisdom established the earth and by understanding formed the heavens. By his, the the Lord's knowledge, which is another word used in the Hebrew Bible for wisdom, uh, understanding knowledge and wisdom are often used interchangeably. By, By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped their dew. Remember in in, uh, uh, chapter seven of the book of wisdom, it's in the same book. The writer says she is a reflection of the everlasting light, an image of the goodness of God. We will find those same words in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. But there the writer is speaking of Jesus saying, he has spoke, he, God has spoken to us by a son through whom he also created the worlds. He, Jesus, is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. So very similar words to what we're reading in the Apocrypha about wisdom. Taken all together, this is a very Trinitarian view of creation, of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, perhaps here called wisdom by this apocryphal author, creating and reflecting and moving together. 
We'll ponder this some more in our breakout groups. The writer of wisdom then moves through Israelite history from Adam to Cain to Noah to Lot, in each case describing the acts of salvation that God did as being from wisdom herself. Wisdom, he says, entered into Moses to help him withstand the Pharaoh. She brought the Hebrews through the Red Sea. You get the idea. You convict little by little those who fall from the right way. And helping them remember the way they sin, you admonish them so that escaping from their wickedness, they believe they may believe in you, O Lord. I love that little by little part. Later, um, the writer says that not only does the Lord convict us little by little, but he judges us little by little, giving us every chance to repent. And we know that to be a bedrock truth from how we saw God treat his people throughout the Hebrew Bible. God is not a smiter. God is a gentle nudger, full of patience and mercy and wisdom. In the next several chapters, the author ponders how on earth a reasonable person could worship an idol. How can they not see God behind all of creation? How can they not perceive the utter uselessness of praying to something they've made with their own hands? And how could they let themselves be led into child sacrifice? The writer says that all evils in the world begin in idolatry. As the book draws to a close, the writer turns his thoughts once again to praise of God, saying, it is not the growth of the earth's fruits that nourishes a man, but that your word preserves those who trust you. Well, that sounds very much like the verse from Deuteronomy 8.3 that Jesus quoted during his temptation, right? When he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Similar words here. The book of wisdom ends with chapters recounting the story of the Exodus, but almost from the perspective perspective of the Egyptians, expressing the terror they felt and describing their pride. Then he talks about the Hebrews grumbling in the wilderness. In one part, in particular, in chapter 19, the writer points out that everything bad that happened to the Hebrews in the wilderness was because they had hated the stranger among them. And he points out that this was the same sin of Sodom, which he describes in verse 17. So that's just a very interesting take on the wandering in the wilderness. The very last verse then turns again to the Lord saying, in all things, O Lord, you magnified your people. You did not regard them lightly, but stood by their side in every time and place. That is beautiful. The last wisdom book in the Apocrypha is the wisdom of Ben Sirach called Ecclesiasticus in the Latin version of the Bible. Ben is the Hebrew word for son, and in this case, the author is named Jesus, not Jesus Christ. This Jesus is the grandson of a man named Sirach, and he wrote this book just as Antiochus IV Epiphanes comes to power. 
It was translated into Greek by his grandson about 40 or 50 years later. And like all the other books of the Bible, we do not have any copies of the original text. This book is 51 chapters long, and it's all Proverbs, most of which are really great. It's a book worth spending some time in, but you don't need me as a guide, except for a few warnings. It's seriously patriarchal, as you would expect from this time period, and at times seems misogynistic. For example, Sirach 22.3 says it is a disgrace to be the father of an undisciplined son, and the birth of a daughter is a loss. That's the NRSV translation. Um, but as always, it can help to check other translations. The World English Bible translates the same verse as, a father has shame in having begotten an uninstructed son, and a foolish daughter is born to his loss. So, you know, completely different way of making sense of that verse. My second warning is about the author's theology around Sheol. Even recognizing that the Hebrew word for Sheol, the neutral place of the dead, is translated as Hades in Greek, we still see the beginnings of a linkage between fiery punishment and Hades in this culture. Sirach 21, 9 through 10 in the World English Bible says, the congregation of wicked men is as tow wrapped together. Tow is just unspun flax or hemp. So he's just talking about a twist of fiber. And the end of them is a flame of fire. The way of sinners is made smooth with stones. And at the last end thereof is the pit of Hades. So this idea of Hades having a pit or a belly of fire is echoed again in chapter 51. Now the whole the Sheol throughout the Hebrew Bible had was viewed as, as a pit, but it there never was fire associated with it. It's this fire um, overlay that, um, that we are keeping an eye on here. But the largest sections of the wisdom of Ben Sirach are devoted to wisdom personified. The author definitely sees wisdom as female and as being created first before anything else. In Sirach 24, um, verse, beginning in verse 3, wisdom says, I came forth from the mouth of the Most High and covered the earth as a mist. I lived in the high places, and my throne is in the pillar of the cloud. Alone, I compassed the circuit of heaven and walked in the depths of the abyss, in the waves of the sea and in all the earth. And in every people and nation, I got a possession. Then the creator of all things gave me a commandment. And he that created me made my tabernacle to rest and said, let your tabernacle be in Jacob and your inheritance in Israel. All three of the books today place an emphasis on wisdom. So we'll use our breakout time to compare notes between these three books and places in the Hebrew Bible where wisdom is described. In the study guide, I've recapped some of the verses we've covered today, plus verses from both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. So use them to help you decide 
what you think about who wisdom is. Actually, it looks like we have few enough people we could stay together for discussion today. Um, enough of us to fit on a fit on a screen. So since we've got several people out, so turn your mics on and let's pull out our study guides. Um, the study guide points out, we've talked about wisdom before in our breakout groups, but back then we were talking about attributes of wisdom. Today, we want to talk about the person of wisdom. Um, and all of these books see her as female. Uh, we just saw her spoken of in unmistakably Trinitarian language, language that we would normally associate with God, the creator, with Jesus Christ, and especially the Holy Spirit. And I reprinted that um, part, which I just read to you in the class. I reprinted it in, a, in the box for you, where it talks about her being all powerful and seeing all and penetrating all spirits and being the breath of the power of God, a clear expression of the glory of the Almighty, a reflection of the everlasting light, um, an unspotted mirror of the working of God, an image of his goodness. Uh, and then um, in the next box, I have the part we just read from the wisdom of Ben Sirach, where he sees her as a created being. And then I reprinted for you what the Hebrew Bible had to say about God creating, made, doing creation through wisdom, um, establishing the earth by wisdom, um, and, and then, but then saying that wisdom was at the beginning, the first creation. And then the New Testament um, Hebrews passage of uh, Jesus being spoken of as being the reflection of God's glory. You know, using same language. And also what I didn't put in here was the part of uh, the Gospel of John, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, where where it talks about um, all things being created through through Jesus. So I don't know. What do you think? What should we do with all this? Well, one of the things <clears throat> that I thought about was, you know, you're talking about sort of evolution of theology over time during like the Babylonian exile. And then when the Greeks start getting involved and you start seeing these things from these other cultures infiltrating the Jewish writings. Um, and <clears throat> this elevated vision of a female personage does not seem to be reflected when you get into a lot of the New Testament, like even in the Gospels, the apostles, the male apostles did not believe the female apostles who were the first ones to see the resurrected Christ. Mm -hmm. um, women were then considered suspect and naturally untruthful and, and you know, you couldn't trust them as far as you could throw them kind of thing. Um, but this <laughs> wise, wise. <laughs> <laughs> this this imagery of wisdom as this this part essentially of the trinitarian view of god um it seems like that's in conflict with where the culture had evolved by the time jesus arrived right good point good point so i, w I wonder if they've you know if this is 
something they're playing. It almost seems like this intertestamental period is kind of a playground of theology where they're, you know, thinking about yeah. things. I heard somebody. I'm wondering if um, some of the reason that these books are in the Apocrypha and not in the Hebrew Bible or some of the Or not in the Hebrew Bible or in the canon for Christians is because of the femininity and the power associated with her. That's an interesting point. What do y'all think? I agree. Um, and, you know, even when we looked at, which is further ahead, but when we looked at the Crusades, sorry, but it's all a power trip, you think. Yep. Because even in the, the Hebrew Bible, women were still trusted and talked about, uh, uh, yes, stuff happened to them and they were a little bit, you know, from the translations and stuff, but mostly trusted and caring people. And, and Marlene's right, by the time we get to the New Testament, it's like, you don't trust them. And I wonder if that, and we'll get there when we get there, of course, but I'm wondering if that is a reflection of um, things that came after, because the way, the, the interesting thing about the New Testament is that it was all written in a very short time frame. Okay. So, whereas this, this, um, period of the Hebrew Bible has spanned over a thousand years, well over a thousand years. And even this intertestamental period is like 500 years, you know, four or 500 years. Um, the, the time of Christ from the time, from the time of Christ's birth to, um, when all of the books of the new Testament were written down was like a hundred years very, very short time frame. So there's, you would think there's more likelihood that um, what's being written down is closer to the facts of the story. But the um, New Testament is divided really into two big chunks. You've got the Gospels, which tell the story of Jesus from different perspectives, but they tell the story of Jesus, his life, and everything else, which, which for the most part is, is books written by men trying to make sense of it all. Um, and if you separate the New Testament into those two pieces and read them as if they were two different books, you will find that in the Gospels, the women were an integral and important part of all the stories. Yep. They were disciples. They financed Jesus' ministry. They cared for people. They provided houses of worship. They were, you know, it just, the women <laughs> were significant, you know, um, and, include, and I would, and I'm including Acts probably from the Gospels through Acts, but is, is the historical parts of of the of the new testament all right then there's this like 
different book, <laughs> which is yep. the rest of the New Testament, where Paul and other writers like him begin to try to make sense of the Messiah dying and being resurrected and then not coming right back the next day, <laughs> you know, um, after after he was, after he went to away to heaven, you know, he didn't come right back and they were thought thinking he was coming right back. So after 10 years or so, they start writing things down and trying to figure it out. And at that point we start seeing the voices of women diminished, like to nil, to nil. I just ascertain, and I, I don't mean to sound man bashing. I just truly believe that it is a power thing. I just really do. And so maybe that's where my mind is fixated, but I just noticed that we do these maybe pendulum swings Mm -hmm. and through that lens of looking at the current events and the things that are going on and cultural Maybe that's why I'm applying it to this. I I don't know, but I just really think it seems power trippy. And I think, and I'm definitely hearing um, you you pointing out that this stuff is fluid. Mm -hmm. I have to to also, I'm, I'm wondering how much of, sort of that shift of seeing, you know, wisdom as feminine and a prominent part of, of the, the, the structure of heaven. Um, going from that to women being erased. Um, how much of that was the influence of the Roman occupation and Roman culture of the time? Because in Roman culture, women were not allowed to testify in court because it was just assumed they would lie. Women were completely untrustworthy from a cultural perspective. And, and I'm, I've got to believe that, you know, we've seen the influences of these other cultures that Israel was subjected to throughout the Hebrew Bible, how much of some of the perspective that we're seeing i mean especially with paul who was a roman citizen um how much of their view is a reflection of what they've absorbed from the romanized culture that they lived in right that's a that's a good point um i I would i do want to raise that women in the in the roman culture were powerful and they had rights and they had you know, they, they, they actually had more power than women in other cultures had heretofore, but they still weren't part of the governance, you know, right. They still didn't govern. And I think that's a lot to Joe's point, you know, um, that, that, and, and what you're bringing up Marlene is that there's, there's just like this really iron barrier there. Um, uh, Martha, I saw you had a comment. Um, Marlene mentioned things that were on 
similarly on my mind. And one of the things that I particularly appreciate that you mentioned, Marlene, that is as we have seen the influence of the culture that people were living with in the Old Testament, why would we not think that the, the New Testament wasn't similarly influenced by the culture and the, the Roman household codes and the, um, uh, the difference, which I'm assuming we'll talk about when we get into Paul, the, the Paul who was less influenced by the Roman codes and the students of Paul who wrote into Paul's name who were heavily influenced by the Roman codes and the difference in the theologies. I was ready to throw Paul completely out until we got to Revelation in a study some years ago where they reconnected back to the Paul who was the person and the similarities in the theology there. Interesting. But yeah, and, and a lot of what you all are, are, are already going to be prepared for is that people who wrote in Paul's name might not have been Paul, right? That, mm. that would not be a new thing or a shock to you at this point, <laughs> because you know a whole lot more about how ancient writing worked. Right, right. Julia. I just know. Go ahead, Julie. Um, okay, maybe I'm a little different, but my grasp of this when we're talking about wisdom as feminine and God is masculine and the Holy Spirit is whatever, I don't see it that way. I see it as the energy source non-binary you know just an energy source a bestowment of a virtue that has all these qualities within it and I wonder if the gender assignments is just a literary device because of an inability to communicate something more Thank you, Julia. No, I agree completely. I was going to say that when I started in there is that I've never really seen, I was raised, we were raised this way, but I've never really seen them to be male and female. I feel that it was just a pronoun assigned so that we would understand. But I find it interesting that the, the spirit or the wisdom is the gentler side is a woman where the harsh side is, of course, a man, which I think has screwed up our entire gender-looking abilities at things, because men have to be strong and harsh, and you know they can't be soft or something wrong with them. Merciful and gentle, and they can't have any of these attributes of God that have been suppressed. Right, right. Those attributes were there. All the attributes of wisdom were present in the story of Yahweh. But I I will tell you that when I was teaching high school, Sunday school, many years ago, those kids had questions I never thought about. I grew up at a church and I assumed that everything they said was what it was. And it wasn't in your answer book. (laughs) And a high school school student, female says, how come none of the disciples are women? Why is it the 12 disciples? They're all men. And somebody, and, 
so somebody, you know, boy cracked off about because the girls wouldn't like the bathroom accommodations. And, <laughs> and then I had another student who uh, told us that she was leaving the church and I'm taking it personal because I worked so hard to create this little supportive network in the high school class. And I'm like, what, what is it that we're not offering here? And she says, I can never be a female leader in this church. I was like, oh, my girl and, and god that's what and then and that's and that was my i remember my response where i went oh and i said well and you're right because god didn't tell you you can't be so you know yeah it's just i think we just get used to the story a certain way and it takes the critical analysis to whoosh, twist it yeah, because obviously, how does it apply to us when it's all this he and she, especially in the New Testament, and the way you're supposed to behave? It's all he. Then does it apply to us? Of course it does. I think it's just the assigned pronoun. Yeah, I saw. I saw, and and it's it, it grieves me that I have had to do this entire series calling God he, but I had to, or it would, you, you know, I'm trying to reduce confusion, <laughs> you know, um, but I'm glad we're having this conversation. It's so important to recognize that the he and the she are cultural overlays and the he and the she are cultural overlays now uh, in our lives. Yeah. I, I have, um, two comments on that, which I think are interesting. One is I have this friend um, who is um, an interesting mix. He's, he's a, a, a Pentecostal evangelical gay man um, who desperately needs there to be a hell and who desperately needs God to be male. Um, and we've had some interesting conversations around that. Um, like I said, he's a very unique individual. Um, that's one piece that I, you know. And God, I think he's very happy to be male if that's what we need God to be. Yeah, yeah. He, he gets really riled up if people refer to God in the feminine. Um, so one of the pastors at my, at my new church was telling a story in a sermon last year where she said her son, who was about um, nine, had come to her one day and asked a question about God using a male pronoun. And she answered her son using a female pronoun to God, of God. And she said her son got this little confused look on his face for a minute. And then he broke into this big smile and he said, I get it. God is they. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and she said, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, it, it kind of reminds me of a little situation that happened in one of my children's families this week. They had the birth of a male Jersey cow. Let me tell you, this thing is so cute. Its ears, <laughs> its eyes, it's gorgeous. It's a little cow. His name is Jack. And because it's a Jersey, those are usually milk cows, but it's a he. So what is his destiny? In two years, he's going to freezer camp. 
And it dawns on me that because of your gender, you're assigned a role. You will either be a birthing cow giving milk or you will go to freezer camp. It depends on your purpose assigned to your gender based on your purpose in life. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we first had kids, there was no discussion about who was going to stay home with the baby. It was just assigned to me. And I now know four or five different great husbands that are staying home with their kids. And it is so cool because, you know, and and I still hear comments from other people outside that say, well, why is the woman wearing the pants in that family? Well, she's not. She just can provide because her job provides better than his did. And it's like, I'm like, back off the gender train and burn the bears multiple rails. It's been, it's a, it's been a pain, a, a, a wound in, in my life that, um, that took a long, long, long time to get over the accusation of being a woman wearing the pants in the family, because I, was the one working outside the home and, and my husband stayed home with the kids and took care of them and took care of me and took care of the house and just did all the things. And his, his dad didn't speak to him for 10 years because of that. But how much richer it is if we can put all these rigid boxes away and just be the created spirits we were meant to be to be the created people and what if we see our physical bodies as a gift that god gave us just like god gave us the gift of wisdom or of humor or whatever your gift is you know what if our bodies are just a kind of gift that we can then deploy in the world in ways that are natural to us uniquely, not with a label attached to it. Martha, you had something. I feel like we do the the gender male collective um, a disservice also, not just women in all of this. Um, I suspect Shelby took some hits. Oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned his dad wouldn't talk to him. Um, and I, when, when David and I were talking about whether or not we would have children, he very much wanted the option to be the one who stayed at home. He worked so hard. Um, he, he, he didn't want the kind of work he was doing anymore. And he wanted uh, that to be different. And I couldn't see myself being at home full-time with children. And I didn't want my children in daycare full-time. Um, I think we just, 
and another there was an episode where a couple couple of times where I was frightened by something where I felt that what I was hearing in the night might have been something threatening to us and and I'm thinking why am I expecting David to be the one who goes to the door to see what it is why would I put him at a risk I'm not willing to take mm-hmm. why would I do that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've thought about that a lot so I have a I have a couple of questions for you pick pick one Thinking about, you know, we've talked here for at length about how gender roles have impacted us, people's perception of us, our perception of ourselves. We have gender perceptions of God. How has that impacted us? I want to just take the whole gender thing question and just let it sit and let y'all carry that off and reflect on how it may or may not have influenced who you think God is um, and whether there is still some influence out there um, of, of gender roles on how you interact with and experience God. Um, but I, the second question, which I did finally remember, uh, and, and it will be our last question today, is, is if wisdom is a created being and is not a Holy Spirit, not an angel, obviously, then who or what is wisdom in relation to the Trinity and to us? That's going to be a hard one. Um, I had something to add to that first one because Mm -hmm. my situation is different than a lot of people where God is concerned because even, I mean, other than, yes, my childhood, I was raised by atheists. And so my mom didn't have, I mean, my mom worked outside the home. I was a latchkey kid. My dad worked outside the home. No, but there was no of these, well, she has to stay home with kids or this or that or whatever. Um, my grandmother stayed home with us until I stayed with my grandmother until I was, my brother and I were old enough to get to school on our own. Um so a lot of that genderness expectations, I never met until after Jeff and I got married, and I started going to church. Mm. And then I felt shoved into this little peg that I had to be in because this is what women are supposed to do. This is how women act. This is what women, you know, and I'd never seen that before, but I wanted to be okay. The thing that messed me up more than God being a male or a female was that God was a father. And my father was not a great father. He was trash. So I spent a lot of my young learning years about God terrified of it. Sorry. Um, But then my, like Jeff's family and stuff, got into you know well you have to do this you can't do that and and so a lot of my beginning with Christianity was all these cans and can'ts so 
I never really got into the gender of who God was other than a father. And that was basically where it was left. And once I got old enough and stuff had happened and God finally got my attention away from what I was getting told to what he wanted me to know, it was so freeing. Yeah, and I think that that's a good point, Renee, that it's not just gender, but it's also roles and God as father um, is fraught mm-hmm. for so many people. Marlene. Um, going to your second question, I have sort of two conflicting battling thoughts going on in my head. <clears throat> I'm being very binary today. Um, the, the one is the Holy Spirit also at times has been referred to with feminine in feminine terms. So you could possibly argue that wisdom is one way of describing the Holy Spirit. The other thing that I have read is that the, the persona of wisdom, Sophia, could be a fourth member of the Trinity, and then it's not a Trinity, it's a whatever that would be. A quadruple, quadruple, whatever, quadruple, yeah, I don't know. Or whatever. Um, but I think I'm leaning more towards the Holy Spirit um, if we're thinking in Trinitarian terms um, that wisdom, at least in these things being described um, in, the, in those, these apocryphal books as being um, either always present with God or created by God. You know, I, I read all of my notes in my, in my new Oxford annotated Bible, um, all those pages before I even got to the books, um, where they talk about, you know, there's different, the, that wisdom is referred to in these two different ways in these books, sometimes as being, you know, co-creator and, and having always existed. And then in other places as having been the first creation. Um, and if that, if, if we look at it that way, then would we then say, okay, well, if wisdom is the Holy Spirit, was the Holy Spirit created by God or is the Holy Spirit in some ways, I've kind of, in trying to deal with the complexities of the Holy Spirit, I tend to sort of think of it more in terms of like avatars, <laughs> different expressions of one being that we see in different ways. Um, and my husband being a, a, having an experimental psychology background has said he kind of thinks of, of the Trinity in terms of different parts of the brain. Hmm. that function in different ways that have different um, roles to play, but are very, very integrated. Mm -hmm. And, um, and in that case, then why would, if wisdom is just another way of talking about the Holy spirit, why would they be talking about wisdom as having been created And does this whole gender thing come into that, that obviously a female 
could not have been, you know, coexisting forever and not created by the male. Mm -hmm. You know, Marlene, I I think I might be much more of a simpleton uh, (laughs) because I just can't add a fourth. (laughs) But what I see is wisdom is not an entity in and of itself, but an attribute of God. And when God says he made something and it was good, it's what are the attributes of what is part of God that is good. Because we we also know that God can get frustrated. You know, we've seen him get disappointed and frustrated. So he's got those attributes. Mm-hmm. What gives God, the attributes of being loving, benevolent, wise, caring, all those things that were mentioned in the, I think it was the Ecclesiasticus book, Mm -hmm. where they laid all that out, or it could have been the book of wisdom. But I think it's all part of God itself. And I love your analogy from your husband. Thank you so much about it being the brain because you take part of that out and things aren't the same. Exactly. <laughs> I This is all blowing. Like it's way over. I've never considered this. I've never heard of it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wonder if part of it is <clears throat> kind of what all three have in common so we when i think of god when i think of the holy spirit when i think of jesus i think first and foremost love Mm -hmm. and then what if somehow wisdom is another equal attribute that all model and represent and at times have um kind of taken that Mm -hmm. so i i don't know i i see it similar to love yeah it's part of the trinity it's all within But we don't call it separately. Yes. Correct. And that makes sense to me, um, you guys, what y'all are talking about, that that, um, just to me, um, we are trying to put language onto something that is indescribable, that is ineffable. And that, that clearly wisdom it exists clearly wisdom is some major part of god's creative power of god's um, movement of god being and dwelling in us and some major part of us uh, of of who we need to dwell in we saw that in the hebrew bible right in the where it talked about wisdom and that wisdom is almost like this water we swim in which is what we call you know you know in the new testament in you we have our we live and move and have our being you know and um and so i'm just wondering if what is happening is that we have in this ancient literature a description of one of the greatest gifts 
that God has given us, which all gifts from God are God. They are part of God. They are attributes of God. They are us being with God and in God. And what if love, like Erica was saying, is one of those same kind of attributes and gifts in which we are to live and move and have our being the same as wisdom. And I wonder how many more such incredible gifts there are that have have not been named here. How much bigger is the blessing that God has for us than what we can put words to. Martha, you had something. Um, so we do have, we have a lot of words about God in our scriptures and in all sorts of other things. Lots and lots and lots and lots of words. And we have quite a bit of art and music, which oftentimes, but not always has words. And Yet words are, there's such a limitation, which is maybe one of the reasons there's so many words is how can we figure this out? How can we figure this out? And there's a wordless essence. And I've had one two of those experiences and one of those is how do you know you're in love you just know right I can explain some things about David about why he was attractive to me and things like that but how I knew when I knew that I loved him how do you there's it's a knowing right and then uh, the day he died, and when I was alone after he died in those first weeks, um, the sounds that came out of me from the deepest, deepest part of me were not words. And I don't have any words for those sounds. And sounds, it requires a body also to make those sounds. And I think that um, all of our attempts to describe God are both beautiful and limiting, sometimes awful, and possibly maybe futile is not the right word, but are, I'm okay if I never get words for that. And uh, I think this discussion has been really helpful to me to remind myself to not limit God and not to limit life in God. Amen. 
Amen. Bless you. Bless you in your grief and bless you in your wisdom. I love you all. Let's stop there. <laughs>